The global supply chain is like an industrial ballet, an intricately choreographed dance of manufacturers, distributors, and transportation infrastructure that physically moves materials and products across the globe. However, just like a ballet, when one dancer stumbles, the whole production can go sideways very quickly. This is what the traffic bottleneck looks like at the ports of LA and Long Beach. In the fall of 2021, with holidays fast approaching, a record number of ships sat waiting just off the port of Long Beach, California, unable to unload billions worth of cargo. 50 miles north in Malibu, the pristine coastline looked more like the area's notoriously congested freeways. Cargo ships also stretched south, some 100 miles or so, towards San Diego, not too far from the border of Mexico. The backup is mostly due to a surge in imports because of the coronavirus pandemic. Online sales increased more than 30% since the beginning of the pandemic and continued to rise throughout 2021. Local lockdowns and physical constraints on workforces compounded the problem until, in the lead up to the holidays, it reached a breaking point. The complex delays at the nation's busiest ports, accounting for 40% of the country's container traffic, affects consumers from coast to coast. One person monitoring the situation closely was Ryan Peterson, CEO of Flexport, a technology platform for global logistics. When he heard the news stories about the backlogs at California ports, he took action. He hired a boat, toured the ports, and then he took to Twitter. In 30 tweets, he laid out his five-point plan to ease the bottleneck. Soon, he was on the phone with California Governor Gavin Newsom, and Long Beach Mayor Robert Garcia was implementing some of his recommendations. So, how does someone end up writing what came to be known as the tweet storm that saved Christmas. Welcome to Beneath the Surface, a podcast series from Stripe Press, all about big ideas and infrastructure. I'm your host, Tamara Winter, and today we're sitting down with Flexport CEO, Ryan Peterson, to understand how he thinks about trade, the way he understands the intersection of government and technology, and why he founded Flexport in the first place. We're going to cover a lot of ground, talking about everything from ancient trade routes to what Flexport is doing to help during the present crisis in Ukraine. I hope you enjoyed this conversation with Ryan Peterson. This is a really long time coming. I almost feel like the hipster who's like, I knew you before my dad was reading like cover stories about you. People now know you for donating lots of money to Ukraine or saving Christmas. But some of us, some of us have been here before that. Maybe we'll start with what is Flexport? Yeah, well, Flexport is a technology platform for global logistics. We make it possible for companies of any size to ship anything anywhere yeah. and uh, simplify that process, try to bring kind of utility-grade infrastructure to an industry that's kind of taped together by duct tape and emailed Excel files and PDF attachments and stuff. We make this seamless. Our, our mission is to make global trade easy for everyone, but we, we want to make trade so easy there will be more trade as a result of when we're finished. 20 years ago, I was a, ran a small business buying products in China and selling them on the internet and was very frustrated by my experience dealing with logistics and felt just like... George Bernard Shaw says... Uh, every profession is a conspiracy against the laity. <laughs> and it felt like that. Like anytime I dealt with these companies, it just seemed like there was, nobody could tell me where my stuff was, how much it was gonna cost, whatever they told me ended up costing more. A lot of really confusing paperwork, regulations, documents that were needed, data that needed to be collected and shared with the governments and stuff. And it just, nobody was there to hold my hand and make this easy for me. And, and like, it's, a, it's an industry full of code words acronyms and Viking English, weird language is used all the time. And like, kind of like an old boys club, literally an old boys club, there's <laughs> men working in the industry. And like, it's very hard to parse as an outsider when you'd ask someone to explain it to you. My working model now that I've kind of been on the other side is that I think that the industry treats these words, these acronyms, this lingo as kind of a rookie detector. Yeah. And uh, I just like 
kind of icky. Like I want to work with companies that just want to help people. And it, it should be a really fun industry. You get to help entrepreneurs, you get to help businesses achieve their goals, right? But it's so important. Like we probably lifted a billion people out of poverty in the last 50 years through free market economics and adoption of global free trading type policies around the world. And yeah, it's like, here's something that's really important, really interesting in my view, fun, and really broken. It's like, it's a good heat map for where you should go work and what you could, what you, where you could like build a career and do something interesting. Like in a word, the thing that you're fixing is transaction costs. It's funny. I was born in Nigeria and every time I go back, my mom's like, look, if we're at the market, don't say anything. Because as soon as I do, it's like, you sound like an NPR host. I'm immediately going to charge you, you know, 40% more or whatever. This is when you go back now? Yeah, exactly. How old were you when you left Nigeria? uh, Two months. Oh, okay, cool. I basically just want to get into, you know, you, you live and breathe logistics so much so that Tell me about your daughter's Halloween costume last year. Uh, well, my wife gets all the credit for this, but um, my we dressed my daughter up. We made like a she made a wagon into a container ship, like a little radio flyer wagon, and made it into the Ever Given container ship. Uh, and we dressed my daughter like a sailor and had her drive, you know, ride around and pulled her around in that thing. And uh, we even at some point blocked traffic with it. And I'm sure nobody minded because it's like this beautiful little girl just being <laughs> driven around. It was super fun. Tell me about so we talked about you know why you started, how you got to starting Flexport, but I want to go back even earlier. You know, what was your upbringing like? How does somebody raise a child that goes on to you know I don't know save Christmas? Uh, saving Christmas. Uh, my, well, so my mom is an entrepreneur, actually, and she's an expert on um, food safety and like regulations, the intersection of food safety and government regulations. So helping companies to comply with food safety regs and build healthier food supply chains. I do kind of think she raised my brother and I to be entrepreneurs. We used to get our allowance by delivering sodas to her office, <laughs> and like we had to sell the so we would buy the sodas at Safeway and the or Giant or something and sell them to her office and. Make you know, make a spread, <laughs> and then uh, and that was your allowance. That was how, yeah, that's how we got allowance. Uh, it was good money. She allowed us to overcharge her for the sodas. We'd go to Costco and buy blow pops in bulk, and yeah. then I'd sell them to all the other kids in my middle school. You know, I don't think at the time I was thinking about entrepreneurship, obviously, or she never talked to me about that. But um, both my brother and I became entrepreneurs. It's interesting how many parallels there are to different parts of the series. But the very first episode with Muya, um, who is building a city in Zambia, his father was um, like one of the chief um, architects of Zambia's financial ecosystem. But his mother was an entrepreneur. Yeah, my mom's a huge influence on me. My brother's probably even more so. My brother's a born entrepreneur too. And when I graduated from college, I didn't have a lot of prospects for gainful employment. I, I don't know. I went to UC Berkeley. I was really interested in international development. The the question of like, why are some countries poor and some countries rich? You didn't want to become an economist. Uh, I didn't <laughs> have the skill set for that. Uh, and the, no, I didn't want to do like a PhD in economics. I, honestly, I'm very skeptical of it all. So my brother hired me working for this trading company. Buying, Is he older or younger? My older brother, yeah. Mm. And he's a compu- he was a computer programmer at Intel and he was taking his salary and using it to buy stuff in China and sell it on the internet. Just like very entrepreneurial. This is late 90s, early 2000s. So there was like a tech startup scene, but we weren't part of that. It was like just a couple of kids trying to make some money. And are you from Berkeley? Bethesda, Maryland, uh, Washington, okay. D.C. So this is interesting because you are sort of like right in the heart of government um, and you're in Bethesda. And for anyone who's listening who doesn't know about Bethesda, Bethesda is where sort of the children of bureaucrats grow up. Yeah. <laughs> well, my, my dad worked at uh, National Institute of Standards and Technologies. Uh, my dad's a computer programmer, actually. He wrote his first code that was like in production and use in the 70s uh, when he was working. Um, it was actually evaluating Soviet defense Eventually, uh, my mom started this uh, business that does food safety, and she needed software. To, and the software that she needed was to evaluate uh, risk of pesticides and applying like, okay, if we use this pesticide, what will happen based on the dietary data of the whole United States population? What, what's the safety implications of various pesticides? And so he wrote that software. And uh, that's still the software that the U.S. government uses to evaluate pesticide risk assessment in the United States. This is written by my father. So in some ways, the sort of marriage of 
government and technology or commerce is just like a very natural one for you. But I'm curious about your philosophical influences. I mean, I'm hearing some like Hayek and what you're saying. Um, I was looking at some of the books that you recommended. And I mean, they're everywhere from the goal to just like interesting philosophical reads. So tell me, who are the sort of um, intellectual influences on how uh, you... The thing I love about reading is like, if, if you're reading good books, every book you read should point you to like two or three more. I don't think I ever really read a book, by the way, cover to cover on my own until I was about 25 years old. <laughs> I'm serious. Like I like hacked my way through college and like, you know, found the, the cliff notes or whatever. <laughs> when I was 25, I was living in China and um, running this sort of business that would export products from China, selling Chinese in the morning and exporting products to sell in the United States. So I, I was living there and all of a sudden books became incredibly scarce. And I was kind of bored. I didn't have that many friends. And so when, you know, there's not a lot of English bookstores at that time uh, in the part of China I was living. So I would go to Hong Kong and buy like a backpack full of books and bring them back. And so that's when I really became a reader. And I think I read over over like 75 books in one year that year. And and, and it's become a, a real passion of mine. The biggest influences, I think the, the aha moments where I was like, whoa, this changed my worldview. Probably like Richard Dawkins and reading um, The Selfish Gene and understanding something about evolution and genetics. Um, uh, and then building from that is um, a book that really changed my worldview is called Complexity. Uh, I, Waldrip is the guy's name. And it's about complex adaptive systems. And this idea of um, feedback thresholds of complexity that when a system has enough interacting parts that at some point there's this threshold of complexity that reaches and it, it has emergent properties and it changes. Um, so like take uh, hydrogen and oxygen is pretty simple, but but if you put them together at some point, you get enough of these molecules together and you get the emergent property of wetness of water. But there's nothing about hydrogen or oxygen that if you looked at them, you would say, oh, this will be, there's wetness here. Like, no, it, it happens at some level of complexity when you put enough of these together. Um, and, uh, and so that was the first book that set me on that. And then the one that I found that really recommended people, it's not a book, it's an audible course called Big History. And it's the application of complexity theory to the history of the world, uh, starting at the Big Bang all the way to the present. So that though, and then when you start to see that you can apply that in business is when it gets really fun. Uh, and that many, you know, it's many of these things are um, it's just fascinating to watch, like a, be able to apply an idea from one discipline to another. I think that's where you get the most innovation is t- taking a, an idea from biology and applying it to business. Like society tends to create specialists. And I really like being a generalist, understanding a little bit about everything. And then you get creativity because you're putting ideas from different disciplines that no one ever thought to combine. Uh, And then my most recent inspiration has been a guy named John Boyd, um, who's a military strategist, and talks about how do you manage volatility and chaos, which is something that the military has to be really good at. And what what are the attributes of an organization that in the middle of complete chaos, fog of war, what's going on here, can still take decisive action and not be caught like in survival mode and fail. Um, and I think that's something I've been trying to apply a lot at Flexport because we're in a lot of chaos all the time. And if we can make sure we're still playing offense, like understanding what's happening around us and taking decisive action and then learning um, based on our actions. Okay, tell me, tell me about trade routes. Maybe you can paint a picture for me, um, uh, sort of about the evolution of of modern logistics. Oh wow! Oh well, trade is something. There's there's evidence of long distance trade between human beings that far predates even things like art. Yeah, and possibly predates language. Like tw- tens of thousands, fifty thousand or more years ago, you can you can find evidence that humans were transporting things over long distance. So it goes for a really long time. Even like the invention of the boat. Uh, the invention of the boat happened in like Mesopotamia where what they were actually doing was transporting um, goods down river. And what they would do is build these wooden boats, cover them with animal skins so they could float down river and then uh, scrap the boat, but keep the animal skins and hike back and do that over and over again. That was tens of thousands of years ago, like before agriculture even. Um, so this, this is an ancient, really ancient industry. I think you could probably date a more modern form with the age of exploration, sort of like Prince Henry the Navigator in Portugal. And actually, you really want to tie that to the Mongol invasions. So the Islamic Empire kind of separated Europe from the East, and they traded a lot, but the Islamic empires were in between. And they were the middlemen, and they marked everything up 
like 10x, made a lot of money, became rich doing that. And during the Mongol invasion, the Mongols came and defeated the caliphate in Baghdad and opened it up. And that's where you get like Marco Polo, right? Traveling to the East and, and kind of saw the riches of Asia and Europe for the first time was trading. And that was about a hundred year window when it was open. And then uh, it came kind of crashing back down. The Iron Curtain of the the um, Islamic Empire came back and Europe was like, wait a minute, we, like, we just saw all those riches. We want to get in on this like cheap spices and all the other stuff, the silks and everything. And so it started with the Portuguese trying to find a way around Africa. And they started, this is like the original kind of like technology industry. They were, had to build all kinds of astronomic instruments to be able to tell where you are. It's about a, I want to say 1350 is when they really started that program. And 1498 is when they rounded the Horn of Africa um, and made it into um, India. Now, it's not all beautiful. Like, obviously, there's terrible things that happen. Like, the first thing they did was kill a whole bunch of people who were on their way to the Hajj uh, Islamic pilgrimage. It's easy to kind of see yourself in these people, especially as, like, a European descent person like myself. I'm like, oh, yeah, I came from these people. But they were, like, really superstitious, very different types of people. They saw themselves in, like, a holy war against Islam. And so it was really, like, reverse jihad, crusade uh, from the beginning. But very quickly, they set up trading centers and the, the spices were like one one thousandth the price or something like that maybe maybe that's a bit expensive but it was so much cheaper if you could go to the source and not just in india but all the way to the um, spice islands which is i think modern the maluka's or indonesia and so it suddenly became very very rich it was a kind of the original venture capital that if you sent a ship to the maluka's and it made it back you made like eight extra money and yeah only half the people made it back but you still got four extra money um it, you know, only half the ships made it back. So that's like kind of the origin. And I think where it really comes to the next level is in the, I want to say like one of the the Dutch uh, East India companies, the first joint stock companies or the first public company you could buy shares in uh, was the shipping company. The crown of the Netherlands and later England and France to this extent gave monopolies on trade. And in exchange for like the crown would take 20%. But then if you wanted to trade with the East, only this one company could trade. Uh, and so that was like 1700, 1800s, the East India Company. But there's terrible things, of course, the trade in slaves, trade in opium was big. Uh, we don't want to pretend like all of trade was always great and you do need regulations and uh, there's good reasons to have like all the rules that we have around trade today. But yeah, it's a fascinating industry. And it's like really cool to be part of that today. I think like probably the most important thing, I would argue the most important technology the last 50 years is the shipping container. Uh, at least in terms of like lifting people out of poverty and unifying the world, creating globalization. And, and yet, like, it hasn't really changed. We still unload these ships one container at a time. Uh, it, it's just like there's not a lot of innovation. And it makes sense because it's hard to change an organization, an institution, a way of doing things. I That actually um, sort of beautifully dovetails into what I wanted to ask you next. You know, most people tend to think of supply chains from a consumer point of view, right? So, um, you know, earlier this week I ordered my favorite version of Cliff Bars. This is a peanut butter banana one. And, you know, I, I press some buttons on Amazon and it comes to me. So that's the typical way people think about supply chains. But can you talk about how the supply chain affects the economy more broadly? Well, it's the circulatory system for the economy. The supply chain can mean a lot of things, but it's also the manufacturing of things, the raw materials, like... There's a great paper called iPencil. Um, you know what I'm talking about? iPencil. I love iPencil. Yeah, for anyone like, who's not like, listening, um, the founder of Fee Foundation for Economic Education, it's a great essay about trade, about how a pencil gets made called iPencil. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And, and it's basically the idea that like there's no human being that understands how you make a pencil. You couldn't possibly make something as simple as a pencil because you're not, you, you, you have to understand, okay, what is it made of? It's got wood. It's got like maybe rubber some graphite in the middle and some kind of aluminum wrapper. It's like, okay, to make that, you need to understand how to cut down trees. Okay, how do you cut down a tree? You need a saw. Okay, now I need to know metallurgy. It's like, right away, you give up. Like, there's no way, you know, of course, there's some people who know metallurgy, but now to make rubber, okay, I need to know how to grow rubber trees, do the little thing where they cut the slit in it, go, you know, catch, capture the rubber, process it. The same for aluminum, same for graphite, and then create, I have no idea how they put the graphite inside the wood, but they have to do that too. It's like there's no one who could do all of that. And then imagine that on an insane complexity of the modern economy where everything is connected to everything else and we all take it for granted. And that fundamentally it's a supply chain. It's how does this connect to one another? How do we connect companies, people, 
and I, and the ideas that go into those products, right? Um, Adam Smith has a great quote. He's like, I, I never saw a dog exchange a bone with another dog. It's, it's something that only humans do. We depend on it to an insane degree. And it's what advances civilization and progress because every time two people trade with one another, there's a mutually beneficial exchange. And so value is created from that process. I give you something that you value more than what you gave me. So I think it's a foundational aspect of like how we rise up as a human civilization, as a human you know, species. I think it's actually one of the dangerous things in, in the globalization is you lose kind of some of the uniqueness of different cultures and different civilizations and being uniquely good at something. I mean, probably the most important economist, if not the most famous, is David Ricardo, who's explained how this value creation takes place when, when two people trade. Um, but if everybody has the same ideas, then all you get is like, oh, we have slightly different geographic attributes, geologic attributes. You have coal and we have timber or something. It's not not that interesting when all the ideas are the same. And you lose some of that if there's cultural monotone, like all the civilizations have the same ideas. It's not very interesting. I love to travel. And I think I used to like to travel even more because the internet has kind of created a lot of monoculture. You can get avocado toast anywhere you want on planet Earth now. It's like a sign elites are traveling in the neighborhood. I hate seeing avocado toast and I'm in some foreign country. Um, and, you know, you, you I want to live in a world where there's like more cultural diversity. And I think it can lead to more interesting exchange of ideas and exchange of products and things. But um, There's a great um, Verge article that I think about constantly called um, uh, Welcome to Airspace, and it's all about the Airbnbification of everything. The last time I was in Zambia, I just tweeted a picture. I was like, where do you think I am right now? And I got like, oh, Miami, San Francisco. And I was like, nope, I am in Lusaka, Zambia. Yeah. And it looks like I'm in Miami. I bet I you can get avocado like, toast in Zambia. You actually days. can. And, and you know what? That avocado toast was some of the best avocado toast <laughs> I've ever had. I'm still thinking about that avocado toast. Um, all right, I'm ready to talk about Flexport. What is the problem that Flexport was created to solve? It's fundamentally that it's too hard to buy products in another country and import them into a different country, ship them around the world, clear them through customs, get them delivered where they need to go. Um, and this is for businesses, like helping a company solve this problem that they shouldn't honestly have to have this big bureaucratic department pushing paper to do the thing. It should be automatic. Like companies need to be really good at two things. It's like make an awesome product that's high quality at scale that people want. Very, very hard. It's almost a nightmare to do that in this world. And then even harder in my view is be differentiated. Like build a brand, a customer connection, sell the product. So supply and demand, right? It's like the core attributes of a business. And if they're doing all this other stuff like compliance and spending time on paperwork and shipping and routing containers and tracking things like it's not really value-added work. It should be an automatic kind of utility scale, just reliable thing that's out there. Um, and that's what, we, that's what we're building. Um, very, very hard problem because if you want to ship a single, let's call it a pallet of goods. Yeah, I actually would love you to walk me through, you know, if I'm, if I'm you know, the Cliff company, what actually does it take to ship this from wherever it was made? Now I'm kind of scared. Uh, to me in, in New York. Yeah, and so if you're, if you're making, well, let's say, uh, I, I don't know enough about, Cliff Bar, so I don't want to speak to that specific company, but let's say you're making uh, a pallet of some new, like, cool hardware company, maybe these headphones right here, and you're trying to, they're, they're probably made in Shenzhen or thereabouts in southern China. Um, and if, if you were to try to get those products made and shipped in a, in a smaller batch, let's take, because I want to show you, it's very normal to ship like a pallet of stuff, and, and it should be even more normal uh, than it is, except it's really hard. Um, but let's say we're shipping a pallet, so we're talking about like one meter cubed of stuff that needs to ship around the world. And it's going to be, okay, how many companies are going to be involved in this transaction? I'm shipping this from, let's say, Shenzhen to St. Louis. Uh, all right, I've got a pallet of stuff, and it's going to go by ocean freight to save money. Air freight's pretty expensive. I've got the factory that's going to pick these up. So i got to send a truck to pick it up, bring it to a warehouse where it's going to be com consolidated with other customers' cargo, put into a container. i got to find a container somewhere. I've got to then get another truck that takes that container to the port. A customs brokerage needs to clear it out of the port, out of the country. I'm now at seven companies involved in this transaction, and I haven't left the home country yet. Seven different companies. Put it on a ship is eight. Clear it through customs on the other side of the world. Bring it to the port. Ten companies. 
Another truck picks it up, brings it to a warehouse that's 12 companies. Another truck brings it to your final warehouse for the companies, uh, wherever it's es- destined. I'm not even like in the store yet. Oh, and by the way, there's a bank that's providing a payment on this transaction. Maybe it's right. Uh, there's a uh, insurance company that's going to underwrite in case something gets lost or damaged in the way. So I've got like 13, 15 companies, a very normal thing to have that many And I don't companies. even have my headphones yet. Yeah, yeah, your headphones haven't got to the consumer, right? And so then warehouse, pick, pack, and delivery. And fundamentally, the problems come about because everybody in this chain is operating off of like a very local set of data of what can they see about the transaction. And yet they're dependent on each other in a chain. Humans have to be involved in some of it. Compliance is at stake. You can't just ship anything across international borders for good reasons. Counterfeit, drugs, arms, people, who knows what can be shipped, right? So you need these regulations. Um, And so that's the fundamental problem is how do we get data to the company that needs to make do something, connect with that asset, with that truck, with that ship, if there's an asset involved, um, show them what to do. They need data to do their job, and then they have to tell us what they've done and share data back. And, and that's, that's fundamentally what's different. Like a, We call this business a freight forwarder. Um, that's what we call this industry that solves this problem. Because if you're a startup making headphones, you definitely don't want to be dealing with 15 companies every time you ship your pallet headphones. So you call a freight forwarder, and then the freight forwarder deals with the complexity. I often joke it should be called freight email forwarding because they basically just like email everybody and make it happen and, and avoid, you don't have to deal with that. What Flexport does differently is build interfaces, web interface, mobile interface, increasingly it's about APIs and connectivity to software talking to software so that that data can flow to and from these parties and get visibility of what happen, what's happening, control over what's happening to help smooth that transaction, make it cheaper, make it faster. Hopefully we can route around disruptions in supply chain. We can find you better routings and um, cheaper, faster, more options and and make that process better. You have had sort of an inside look more so than most uh, into what part of the supply chain has broken down in the past couple of years. You know, there's the like sort of evergreen headline in this, in these unprecedented times. What in the supply chain broke down? Can you just help me understand that? Um, a lot of things. I mean, I think fundamentally what's happened is that consumers really shifted their buying patterns rapidly overnight when we we all locked down and stopped going to restaurants, hotels, bars, travel, all these things that are in this, what we call services, massages, like stuff that you just stopped doing. It tended to be services. We all shifted our spend onto goods. Income didn't fall that much. Um, a lot of people were out of work, especially if you worked in the services businesses, but the government really printed a lot of money and did a lot of stimulus. And so people had money. Money burns a hole in your pocket. You got to spend it. Uh, You know, you got to get your dopamine somewhere. So people just kept buying stuff on Amazon and elsewhere. E-commerce went crazy. So you had this big shift from services onto goods. And with all those goods purchases, that just put incredible stress on our supply chain manufacturing companies and and couldn't keep up. Um, And so a lot of things kept breaking down on logistics. It's a simpler story. We just didn't have enough infrastructure, not enough containers, not enough chassis. These are the trailers that hold containers, not enough drivers for the trucks, not enough container ships. The ports that we have didn't have enough throughput to keep up with all the excess volume. So like volume of containers is up 20% over pre-pandemic levels and things started to break down um, just by just not being able to keep up with the demand. I'm thinking back to when my poor dad had to sit through me and Swan Lake. I mean, if one thing goes wrong, if the if the the nutcracker you know falls, everybody falls, <laughs> and and it sounds like that is kind of there's a similar level of fragility in our in our supply chain, which I don't know that most people appreciated because again, there's a pencil right here. All you can see is you know the pencil that gets to you, and a lot of that complexity is just kind of hidden from the yeah. And markets work like for the most part and the price mechanisms respond. And you, you gotta be careful, what, like if the price goes way up for ocean freight, which is has, it's like up 5X or so over pre-pandemic levels. And there's a lot of push right now. Congress is trying to bring it back down through regulations. We've got more talk about price controls than we've had like in my lifetime right now. And it's pretty dangerous because that high price is a signal to market participants, 
hey, there's money to be made if you can bring a ship to market, if you can build a ship. And and that's how markets are supposed to function. So you take out the price mechanism and you will not get more goods in response to the demand. And like what we need is more supply. When And th- that's what prices are for. So when prices go up, like I know like a lot of government politicians are, it's popular to say, oh, corporations are greedy, but like maybe so, but the mechanism is price is high. Oh wait, there's opportunity here. And people surge onto that. And that's, it's amazing. It is a ballet like that it all works. And it works because of the price mechanism, basically. Um, but it's also amazing that it works given how screwed up humans are. Like human nature is pretty screwed up. And like uh, uh, the fact that it all works is kind of a miracle. Like people have all, we're kind of like beasts inside and have all these crazy emotions and terrible things. And yet, like the economy mostly works. And it's, we can call it fragile, but it's been relatively resilient. Tell me about some of the misconceptions that people have about global trade. You know, you've become kind of a go-to expert. Like, what are the sort of things people just get wrong over and over again? Um, well, the idea that trade is exploitative, I think, is a really interesting one. Like, you have this whole fair trade movement, which I don't quite get because trade is like mutually beneficial exchange. So the idea that someone's being exploited here doesn't really add up to me. Um, I think you do need really good regulations on like externalities, like environmental damage. And there's great reason to have rules like to protect environment, but, and, and labor safety standards and things like this, child labor and all that. But like, that's not a trade. That's just like good governance. Um, the trade aspect of like one company exchanging something for money on the other side of the world, that's like, that is the heartbeat of wealth creation, value creation, the engine of prosperity. And so to take it away, I've, I've found um, to be, yeah, really dangerous. Um, I think that's like one criticism. I think the valid criticisms that I'm very much like really interested in, or the stuff I was getting to earlier around like global monoculture, like if it's the same product sold everywhere on planet Earth, the Earth becomes less interesting. Um, and it's maybe that's like a privileged white guy thing to say because like I want to go to Zambia and experience like Zambian culture and like show me what Zambia is like and make it different. Whereas the Zambian people are like, look, we're trying to be less poor. Yeah. We want to have a life like you have. And who am I to say like, oh, you can't, I don't want you to benefit from like Western nice things. I want you to live like the way Zambians <laughs> always lived in my mind. Look, so, I didn't want to say it, but I, you know, I was thinking it, but I'll tell you what, next time I go back to Nkwashi, I'll take you with me. You've touched on this a lot, but I want to ask you explicitly. You know, there there's an inverse relationship between trade and poverty. Um, and I'm hoping you can offer some sort of like more examples of this and expand on that point a little bit, because it's one that I believe really strongly. Yeah. And well, we've seen it over the last 50 years. I think China's probably the best place you can point to it, where we lifted 600 million people or so from the below the poverty line. It's really an economic miracle. Um, but it's not unique to China. Korea is a great example, export-led growth in Korea. Um, Dubai is a more modern example where liberalization and opening things up and allowing trade to take place. I, I think it's well-grounded in economic theory, which I'm skeptical of, but in empirical data, you can just look and see that the countries that trade more become more prosperous. And it's a little dangerous in my view. There is nothing that says that all progress is up and to the right. We kind of think so because we feel like we're in a golden age and the world's never been richer. And the graph of GDP is just like this amazing exponential curve, 4% annual growth. But if you do it for 500 years, you get like an insane exponential curve. But that does not have to be the case. And if you look across 10,000 years of human civilization, there are these waves of progress and, and then collapse. And we're right now at a crossroads where trade has not been so unpopular in a long time. You've got trade wars between China and the United States. You've got pretty much both parties in the United States no longer supporting a, a, a free trading agenda. Uh, you've got war, as we speak, uh, unfolding in Ukraine, which has made trade and economic sanctions into a weapon. We don't know. And I, I'm not necessarily arguing you shouldn't do this, but we should talk about the consequences. Um, Russia's and Ukraine combined are number one and number five in grain exports. And Belarus is, I think, number one in fertilizer exports, in potash. And take Africa. Over the last 40 years, Africa's made huge amounts of progress. They've 5x the output of food in the continent per capita over the last 40, 50 years. But a lot of that's dependent on fertilizer imports. 
And so if you suddenly remove all these fertilizer imports, and that's going to be, even for the food-sufficient nations, all of a sudden they might not be. Mm -hmm. And a lot of countries, take Egypt or many Middle Eastern countries, are net food importers. And, and they buy a lot of grain from Russia and Ukraine. And if that's removed from the market, food insecurity is what leads to civil war, famine, anarchy, right? And we're on some level going to find out just how important globalization and trade is because we've taken it for granted. We've become incredibly dependent on it. And if you suddenly rip that carpet out, it's almost it's pretty unfair to these countries who were sold a bag like, hey, you'll be able to get goods from anywhere. It's very scary. I'm very worried about it. It's really interesting because there are, you know, the first order effects that I think, even those, I don't know that they're very well understood. But these second order effects, I think, are like really poorly understood. Yeah. And, and this and second order effects, third order effects. I mean, it's really anyone who thinks they could predict all of this. I have no idea. But very few people predicted, like, re- realized that actually the governments really aren't nearly as important as the people in the West and in the social media world just reacting. And then every company feeling like, oh, we can't do business in Russia anymore. Right, Even like if Coca-Cola. we're allowed to legally, we just can't. And backing off. And like, that's not, that probably was not part of the calculus of like, you know, we're not, McDonald's is not required to shut down all their stores, but they just did. It's like interesting, you know, 30 years ago or whatever, you see like those incredible images of the first McDonald's opening post Iron Curtain falling. And now, you know, McDonald's is like, pulling out. It's just, it's really interesting and visceral. You talk often about cargo as capital. Tell me, what does that mean when you talk about cargo as capital? Well, just inventory is another form of dollars. It's just take, the money has taken a different form for a period of time. I mean, that's this trade fundamentally is you've exchanged dollars for this other thing, which is a form of capital, working capital, inventory. I think many logistics companies and logistics um, companies that are buying logistics services, brands, the logistics department is not really thinking in these terms. This is classic, like finance teams think about this. Like they see it on the inventory and the on the balance sheet as you know, working capital inventory is another line item there. But the logistics teams of the world have been trained just to like buy cheap freight, as cheap as they can get the service to buy freight. They're not really doing the math, which is not that sophisticated, but it takes one degree of sophistication more to realize that hey, you know what? If you can ship that container thirty percent faster then that's 30% less inventory at any given moment sitting on the water, being unproductive, doing nothing useful. Um, And so you should be willing, now you can do the math, are you willing to pay a premium for faster freight in order to get that cash back and reinvest it in your business in more interesting ways and put it to work? Um, This is why, that's one of the reasons why very high value products will ship by air. You don't want something really, really valuable sitting on the ocean for a month. One, it might get damaged, but no, it's more, it's not valuable. If you have a, a container load of iPhones, I've not done the math. Well, we could probably do the math pretty quickly. There would be uh, probably 50,000 iPhones in a container times a thousand bucks each. $50 million in an iPhone. I made this up. I'm not, I, I have no idea, but I'm just doing it in my head. $50 million. There's better things Apple can do with 50 million bucks, like run some more ads and pay for air freight, which isn't that expensive, given the the value of those products. So those will ship by air. You know, there's some degree of that, but the typical logistics team doesn't think that way. And at Flexport, we try to get, hey, can we help you be heroes, help you represent this data to your CFO so they can see the option like, oh, wow, I could, if I ship, if I pay a little bit more to ship it faster, I get the money back and improve my uh, working capital situation. Um, I want to talk about containerization because I've asked you very little about that. Uh, you know, shipping containers are kind of the heart of global trade and they're the basic unit for measuring global trade. I want to know, is more generally better when it comes to containerization? Yeah. Um, well, I think containers revolutionized trade. We probably reduced the cost of shipping things by like 95 to 99%, depending on the commodity. You see these old photographs. We have some in the Flexport office. Like there's this photographer who worked at the Port of Oakland as a longshoreman and was also a photographer. And he took these beautiful pictures right at the dawn of the container era. So they have some containerization, but they also had these guys doing backbreaking work, like hauling sacks on their bag, loading the ships. And the way the ships were loaded was like literally like tying rope to tie it all down and unbelievably laborious. And it would take a week or more to load a ship, which is not a good use of an asset. Like you got to get this thing moving. It makes money when it sails. Um, So containerization revolutionized the world and made trade possible, made it possible to buy things from around the world uh, and find, you know, allow economic opportunity, jobs to be created, and 
us to have cheap stuff as well. However, there's been very little progress in that since the 70s when this took place. I don't think the container itself needs to change form factor. It seems mm-hmm. like basically correct. Uh, but the process by which they get loaded, unloaded from the ships, it seems like there's a lot of opportunity besides just like pluck one container at a time off the ship. Like it would be fun to do a design contest with this with like I mean, some really creative types. Of maybe like, you should. <laughs> yeah. Like conveyor belts, like Pez dispenser out the front. I don't know. There's going to be some better way to do that. There's um, there's so much talk right now about the next World's Fair, like bringing back the World's Fair, reviving it. I don't know. I would love to go and see container ships. I was eating at Mission Rock Bay and we were just watching the container ships just one by one come through. And I, it would be really cool to see like a giant robot crane. Well, the, the thing to watch is, uh, is the crane up or down? What does it mean? Well, if it's up, it's not working. And just watch, they're, they're not down that often. Tell me, speaking of throughput, is the health of global trade, is it primarily about throughput? Um, well, from a logistics standpoint, yeah, it's all about throughput, efficiency, cost, you know, cost, transaction costs. How do we lower the transaction costs that reduce the amount of error? Like most actual transaction costs, some of it comes from humans doing work, but I think, it, at least with Inflex, most of the problems come about through bad quality, bad data, rework, like having to redo the thing, getting the, when the data is wrong, it can lead to, you know, a hundred X more cost. Like if you take a customs clearance, if you file with the right data, it might take you a minute to get the data organized correctly, like a minute of human labor, uh, review the documents that we use machine learning to ingest the, the data off of, if it is a pay, uh, a, PDF or an Excel file or something, but you still need a human to review it and validate it like by, for compliance reasons. So it might take you a minute. If the data is wrong, it might take you two weeks of dealing with customs to sort it out and what went wrong. I guess I want to know, um, and this might be intuitive to most people, but why is it so important to have uniform standards across countries on things like shipping container dimensions? I didn't realize that that actually wasn't standardized until very recently. Yeah. Um, sa- well, standards are crucially important for, I mean, the container's an obvious one because if the container's a different size, then you can't have a standard size ship, crane, et cetera. If every container's different, it just leads to chaos. And so that was actually created by the Federal Maritime Commission, which is the U.S. agency, created that standard and then used a funding mechanism where if you wanted to build a ship, you basically got super cheap capital as long as you adhered to the standard. You could build another kind of container ship, but why would you do that when like this is the standard everyone's using and it's like free money if you build a ship like that? Um, so that was one way to get a standard. Notoriously hard to get everyone to agree on standards. Um, why? Well, everyone has their own opinions and you get these very boring consortiums. Like I've never been involved in the, what do you call the web, the HTML standard setting body that says CSS and all these things. I would go crazy. I might have an opinion, but I can't sit through those meetings, which is dangerous because then the standards get set by like the most boring people possible who are willing to sit through such meetings, right? And, and actually, it's a very good example is that the 40-foot the container was not the right standard um, necessarily, um, that the companies that invented the shipping container were, one was using a 24-foot container and one was using a 26-foot container. And for their businesses, that was like more optimal for the size and volume of the stuff that they were shipping. And there's nothing to say that 40-foot is the right amount. In fact, I would argue it's definitely the wrong standard because for trucks in the United States, domestic trucks, 53-foot is the length of a standard semi-truck, which is really silly because we should have 53-foot ocean containers because then on every single shipment, you'd have about 30% more cargo per driver per asset move. Um, it would Why be, is it 40? It was just set that way arbitrarily arbitrary. by the Federal Maritime Commission. I mean, I don't know. I, don't, I wasn't in, in the meetings, but a standard setting body. So, that, so maybe it's your fault because you weren't in the meetings. Or, or like take the QWERTY keyboard. I mean, it's notorious. Like not, It was set to slow you down rather than to type fast. <laughs> uh, so that's a bad standard. But And yet standards are super valuable. If every keyboard was different, you could only use your own computer. I think... Um, optimizations are really important here. So for example, all the containers that we ship on average are only 70% full. Like we use, we digitize these packing lists and do the geometry of the cardboard boxes inside and see that they're only 70% full. There's 30% extra space right here. Okay, cool. Like you get a 30% savings on carbon just by filling the container correctly. That's not hard. So there's some easy low hanging fruit, but fundamentally, how do you replace this? And it might be that this is one of the last holdouts where you continue to use fossil fuels even as we go to electric fleets uh, on cars or nuclear, hopefully nuclear power for the grid. Like you're probably not going to get people comfortable. There has been one nuclear power cargo ship in the history of the world and back in the 60s, but I don't think we're ever going to go back there. It's what too- happened to it? 
uh, I got decommissioned. It went for a couple of years. It was like a super fast uh, boat, um, but it's pre-container era. And so when the containers came along, it was retired. And I think it was also pre-Chernobyl when people freaked out about nuclear. It is so interesting to me. You know, my background, I went from Bethesda to San Francisco too, then to New York. But um, it it was always really interesting to me to observe the way that technologists interact with government. There's your sort of Stuart Brand style person who is sort of both very interested in government and very interested in technology. But there is, I think, a perception that technologists today sort of hate the government. And I wonder why it is so important to you and why you have sort of gone out of your way, really, to work with governments, basically at this point on every level. Um, well, it's our business is in clearing goods through U.S. Customs. So, we, you know, Flexport couldn't exist until we got a license from the government to be able to do customs clearance. And I had to go through FBI background checks, Department of Homeland Security, any every customs worker does. Um, so, we, you know, that is our business is complying with government regulations. And we don't have a problem with the government regulations, actually. I think there's good reasons. Of course, I can object to certain things. I think tariffs should be lower, have nuance and stuff like that. But, like, fundamentally, governments have every right to to control what goods flow into their country and and there's reasons very good reasons to prevent drugs and what certain kinds of weapons and uh yeah illicit activity counterfeits and stuff from crossing borders so it's it's just like a you know the, the government plays an appropriate role and we're happy to work with them constructively on that stuff so as a citizen i am kind of like confused in san francisco why the tech community has been so disengaged with the government i mean like we have the board of supervisors is our version of the city council here in San Francisco, and it it's like really antagonistic to technology and to business. Um, they just keep passing rules that are like really anti-business, new taxes, things that are just like, oh, they clearly don't want us here. We should leave. And yet, there's 11 people on that board. I think probably seven of them are really anti-business, and four more moderate and reasonably pro-business. Appreciate that we employ lots of people in the city and and pay lots of taxes. So there's seven seats that you only need a majority or some form of majority, seven elections, each of which is decided by a couple hundred votes. We are home to some of the greatest technology platforms in the world with literally billions of users. Like we've managed to sign up a billion users for your website and you can't get a hundred people to vote in an election. Like what is going on? Why are we so disengaged? I don't have a good answer for it. I think you'll probably start to see people wake up and take action. Like Look, it's, I believe, deeply in democracy, but part of the democratic process is people like taking action and getting people, getting out the vote. And, you know, as you look across, whether it's shipping, Flexport, what are you optimistic about? Uh, well, you know, it's, it's, you have to stay optimistic about the ability for individuals to make a difference. But I've found over and over again in life that if you just, like, take some action, it has a quality of its own that... You pick up the phone and call someone and make something happen, send emails, make stuff happen. And the world just kind of responds. Most recently, like we had this concept on our executive team meetings. We Tuesday after the war started, we're like, hey, we should activate Flexport.org on Ukrainian relief. For people who don't know, what is Flexport.org? Oh, that's the impact arm of Flexport. We do logistics for humanitarian relief, disaster relief. It has two missions. One is carbon measurement and offsetting and mitigation, and, and two is humanitarian relief. Mm -hmm. um, so this is our impact arm. Um, of course, the executive team level, we thought of, hey, let's get Flexport.org working on this. Flexport.org had already been working on it for like three days. They had already lined up nonprofits and aid agencies and were taking action, but we uh, but what we said was, hey, let's help them raise some money. I mean, there's only so much that Flexport can do as one company to pay for exp very expensive humanitarian relief operations. So let's reach out, texted a couple of people. Next thing I know, Ashton Kutcher and Mila Kunis run this like GoFundMe campaign that's, as of this moment, has raised 20 million bucks for, for us and for Airbnb.org to house refugees, us to do logistics for refugee uh, sites. It's like four days we did that. And... Not everyone has our brand and our resources and knows how to text Ashton Kutcher or whatever, but like promise you can start on a smaller level and just take some action mm -hmm. and help somebody. And, and especially when you try to help someone else is when the world tries to help you, help you help them. But next thing you know, it's a virtuous cycle. And we've seen that with Flexport.org. In fact, that was part of the reason that we set it up in a way that we can take donations is it allows us to go out 
and ask people to get involved. Like our customers, we get them to donate products. If we can find a product that our customers make that a refugee camp needs, that's like what we do is we match them and we pay for the logistics or we'll get a donor to pay for the logistics. But like by getting that sense of community engagement, everybody is asked to help. Well, people love to help. Like they want to give back. They want to find these opportunities. I, I'm so very optimistic of the power of kind of, I might call it naive optimism that like believing that you can do something even if it's tiny and that has the power of its own to inspire other people to do that. Um, we live in a messed up world, but I don't think it's more messed up than it's been in the past. Like there's always been wars since the dawn of humanity. Go read the books. Like there's been much worse wars, as bad as it is to say, because we've never had an iPhone to watch this stuff firsthand the way we do right now. But wars have gone on since the dawn of men. They're not going to change because human nature is not going to change. There's going to be wars in the future. And and yet, humans also, I think, if you were to go over right now to Poland, you would see people taking care of each other, people housing refugees, people looking after families, looking after, and so the bright spot of humanity is not going to change either. And um, there's a lot to be optimistic about, for sure. It's like kind of crazy to recognize we all do kind of have these superpowers. It takes a long time to compound so that like I, the world has given me more resources and connectivity and network to get stuff done. But I think we all have that superpower to a bit. And the more you use it, the more it compounds and becomes more powerful. Like I have a couple of friends who are, I call them like obsessive phone users uh, on like the old school, like call people. And I, these people have superpowers I would you would not believe. Like the willingness, I don't have this, but the if you had it, the willingness to make 20 to 100 phone calls per day. If you make 100 phone calls per day, in 10 years, you'll be a billionaire. I like, I'm certain of it. Like one of them called me last night. We're flying all these goods over to Ukraine and he's trying to get me to fill the planes full of refugees coming back. And I'm like, that's a great idea. They're passenger planes that we're yeah. using. So there's empty seats. We could do that, but they need visas to come into the United States. He's, he's like, yeah, you're right. Okay. And he just like patches me through and calls this like world famous venture capitalist while I'm on the line, gets him on the phone. He's like, hey, can you help us get visas for refugees coming to the country? And the guy's like, I don't know why you would think that I could help you with that. But like, let me see. I'll email the government. And like next thing you know, like emailing senators and like, I have no idea if that'll happen or not. Probably not. But like, I've seen crazier plans work. Uh, and it's just like the willingness, the energy to go try stuff, like make it work. And you keep trying it and it compounds. So a bit like that um, with my kind of port tour tweet or, you know, I've just been trying stuff like this for a long time and then finding out like, oh, wow, it can like, you can actually have a big impact out there if, you, if, you're, if you're willing to look stupid sometimes and just go for it. So that was Ryan Peterson, CEO of Flexport. I don't think there is a lot more to say after that, other than maybe we should all be making a few more phone calls. In the meantime, I hope you will join us for the next episode of Beneath the Surface. We'll be looking at a type of infrastructure that has acutely felt the impacts of COVID-era supply chain disruptions, housing. We'll travel to London and visit with a Haredi Jewish community that has fought to upzone their houses so they can have room for their large families. Beneath the Surface is a production of Stripe Press. The senior producers for this series are myself and Everett Katigbak. This episode was produced by Jack Rossiter Munley. Whitney Chen was our production manager extraordinaire. Our associate producer and editor for this episode was Astrid Landon. Our sound mixer and sound designer was Jim McKee. Original music for this episode was composed by Auribus. To learn more about Stripe Press, our books, films, and more, visit press.stripe.com. That's it for this episode. I've been your host, Tamara Winter. This is Beneath the Surface. <laughs>